Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes and Friends, the podcast where we look at music inside and out with friends. I'm Noah, you probably know me best as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and I make 12-tone, and today we're doing things a little different. Instead of bringing on another YouTuber, our guest today is an actual academic, someone whose work we've cited on the podcast a couple times. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, so uh, my name's Scott Greenberg. Uh, I do feel funny being referred to as an academic. <laughs> I have been to college, if that's what you mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mostly mean that I've read your master's thesis. So. And I thank you for that. You are one of few. But yeah, <laughs> I, I got in contact with you a while ago. I wrote this thesis called The Apparent Bias Against Comedic Popular Music. And it sort of investigates why funny music is often disregarded or looked at less highly aesthetically. And I kind of come at that from a standpoint as a musician and a songwriter. I release music under the name Scott Making Sense. And I did this whole academic project to kind of look at that topic. To legitimize yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> it was very personal. That's yeah. yeah, we we talked about Corey brought that paper up and we talked about that on our episode on comedy music. So if you haven't Yeah, also the music list one, I believe. Yeah. Go back and check it out. Uh it's great. Yeah, we're we're really stoked to have you on. It's exciting to have somebody who's not a YouTuber on this show. You're uh you're breaking new <laughs> ground. <laughs> that's that's impressive. I'm the yeah, I'm a non YouTuber. That's how I introduce yeah. myself to people. <laughs> I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so as usual, we asked you to bring some sort of topic to at least use as a launching off point, and we'll see how things go. But like, uh, what do you want to talk about? So I had this idea, something I've been thinking about for the last couple months, actually. And it's this argument that I see online a lot that is art versus content. And I think initially I yeah. started seeing this on Twitter where it was kind of like the two sides are, you know, half the people are saying, don't call your art content. You know, you're devaluing your art yeah. and you're sort of lowering it and making it not worth anything. And then the other side is saying, that's pretentious. It's content. You make a thing, you share it with people. That's what content is. I think that's an interesting dichotomy because I think Corey and I are both the weird people in the other space where we make what people would generally call content and we try to elevate ourselves by calling it art, you know, like, <laughs> like I think we're in, in a weird space. Yeah. So I'm very, I'm really interested in this topic and it's a conversation that I think, I mean, I think the word content is definitely like new, but the core of this conversation has been going back to like, like, it's not like this is stuff that Adorno yeah. was talking about with jazz yeah. at the turn of the century. And like, like, it's a really kind of evergreen debate, I guess. Yeah. And when I think of like, you know, the question of content specifically, again, to focus at least uh, on more the modern side of things, I think of it in a lot of the same way that I will often see discussions of like influencers, mm -hmm. where working in the industry that influencers are, I think that you see from like marketing people and like industry people of that level that like there's almost this assumption that we refer to ourselves as influencers. Yes. That, that is sort of how how we think about ourselves. And it's not. Most of the people I know might describe themselves as influencers if you push them about like, you know, the business side of like how they make money or whatever, but they're not like thinking of themselves as 
influencing, they're thinking of themselves as creating. And in the same way, I think what I make is definitely content. And then like, if I'm talking about it in sort of an analytical perspective, I will refer to it as content, but I think about it as art. Yeah, I think I tend to agree with that. Like, I think as per usual, our ghost notes, as we get into this topic, I think we need to kind (laughs) of figure out what exactly, maybe this is the whole question around this topic, but what exactly is there a line? What is the line? How would you kind of, Scott, define in, in your mind, is there any difference between these two? And if there is, where do you draw those parameters? Sure. So first, I want to just address something you were saying, Noah, which is you're talking about like Adorno. And uh, I think that's really where my mind went to. And like how this conversation, even though it feels very current, uh, like with content and influencers and social media, this is to me is an old argument. This is like something that's been ongoing yeah. for forever of the modern age, just maybe with slightly different words, you know, like instead of saying content, with something like art versus entertainment. So I think what what interests me about this conversation and this argument is that the people on both sides seem to be like pretty sure that there's a right answer. And I don't, yeah. I don't think there is. I don't think something is intrinsically art for any particular reason. Um, so I don't think you can definitively say this is art and not content or vice versa. So I'm more of the mind of sort of an open-mindedness and flexibility of naming, but that I just want an acknowledgement. Like I want people to kind of say, well, I call this art because there's a strategic reason for that because you look at it a certain way and you appreciate it differently versus I call this content because I expect people to engage with it as you would with content. Yeah. So like Beethoven's Ninth, for instance, would be content. Content, pure content. For sure. (laughs) I think something like thinking about that with my process, there are videos that I do that in my mind, I think of as content. And there are videos that I do that in my mind, I think of as art. And I think for a lot of kind of self-identifying for me, at least from this side, a lot of it is a like process and approach thing where, you know, I could get into the nitty gritties and try to define this stuff. But ultimately I think what it comes down to for me is if I want to make it, it's art. If I am making it because I feel I have to, it is content. <laughs> yeah, I think one thing that Scott hit on that I think is really interesting and that I'd like to highlight is just this idea of the distinction being how how it's engaged with. Yes. Right? Like, this is a classic thing of mine where, if, if you'll remember a couple episodes, I forget which episode, but I was making the argument that art is experience and that art is not necessarily something that is an intrinsic property of an object, but is about how you engage with that object and how you experience that object. Yes. Or object in a very loose sense, not necessarily physical. Mm. But like in that same way, I think that the distinction between art and content is very much like, cause I'll go to YouTube to just like watch a video. And at some level, whatever video I watch, what I'm just going to YouTube to watch a random video is content because I'm looking to it as content in that sort of way. But I also think, and I don't think that anyone here has said anything to contradict this, but just I think that it's important to be clear that I don't think there has to be a line between art and content. I think something can be both, right? Like I think a lot of polyphonic videos for me are very artistic, like the way that you do all the editing and have the things, you 
you know what a polyphonic yes. video is. I don't have to explain <laughs> what they look like to Noah. but um, Or to anyone listening to this podcast. <laughs> hopefully not to anyone listening to this podcast either. You never know. But like, <laughs> it's possible. Maybe they're just huge fans of me for some yeah, reason. I mean. But no, um, I think that a lot of polyphonic videos are very artistic and I experience them as works of art, but I'm watching them as pieces of content. Well, I think also like I've talked about this before where generally my definition of what qualifies as art is anything that you view as art. You know, it's an yeah. incredible, it's very like postmodern and everything. Like it's a very liber oh, yeah. liberal definition of what art is. But ultimately for me, it is the act of observing a piece of media or whatever as art. I guess media is probably a, a term that I can use here. Like the act of observing yeah. a piece of media as art is what makes it art. And yeah. it is like when we talk about art versus content, again, like you're saying, Corey, like it is an an observational, an experiential thing. Just to add on to that, there's pretty much exactly that in the philosophy world. There's this essay written by a guy named Arthur Danto, who he wrote this piece called The Art World. And his thesis is basically anything is art if it is accepted by the art world as art. So if you go into yeah. a museum and the curators said, yep, that's art, it doesn't matter what it is, that's art because the people in the art world generally agree that it is. And he kind of had this revelation after seeing uh, Andy Warhol's Brillo boxes. And he said, well, how can that be yeah. art? That's just, you know, something you'd buy in a supermarket. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, I don't know this philosopher, so I don't know if at all there was a value judgment on that statement. But I think there are people that would take that as kind of a negative thing in general, as you see people's response to modern art or experimental music or a lot of this stuff. But in my mind, like that is... That is the wonderful thing about art, you know? Like, yeah. that's what I love about art is being able to look at something and see the way, you know, like, to use an overused example, but the banana taped to the wall, right? Yeah. When you just see yeah. a banana taped to a wall, it's whatever. But when you see it, when it is framed within the context of art, that changes the way that you engage with this object and you as a person have a different experience of this object because of how it has been framed as art. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of overused examples, this is sort of the big thing about 433, right? Is that, you know, sitting in silence, like, isn't really music. And this there's this argument that people make, like, oh, 433 isn't really music, it's performance art, which I get. Mm. But, like, in order for the performance to work, you have to accept that it is music. And so in that sense, it sort of has to be music in order to work. And so it is music, even though, you know, people can certainly make all sorts of technical arguments about why it shouldn't count as music. But at the end of the day, the point of 433 is that it's music. Definitely. I just will add, Danto loved it. He thought the Warhol okay. thing was great. great. So yeah. his, his, that was okay, his cool. viewpoint. Like, this is so cool that this is what art can be now. Yeah. I think it's interesting because when we talk about this kind of like fluidity of art, I think in the art versus content debate or content or entertainment or whatever you want to call it, I think that the one of the things that especially the word content implies is I don't necessarily think that anything viewed as content can be content. I don't think content yeah. is transformational in a way that art does. I think often content has 
some sort of a transactional implication to yeah. it. I don't know that this is accurate, but I feel like contextually and part of the reason I think some people object to their art being called content is that it also implies some level of disposability and interchangeability, right? Like if I just go to YouTube and watch a video, I'm not necessarily like, if, if I ha- watched a completely different video instead, from a content perspective, I didn't really necessarily have all that different an experience, whereas from an artistic one, I may have. Yeah, and I yeah. think there's also tied in with that like a sort of functionality or utility to content that is maybe not as tied up in art. Art is more something yeah. that is generally, you know, something you have a disinterested engagement with. It's not like something that's supposed to be useful or, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I'm always thinking of Duchamp's snow shovel. Like he took a yeah, useful sure. thing <laughs> and he hung it in an art gallery, making it, you know, useless, but an art piece. But I think you're totally right about there's sort of a disposability that's associated with content. And one of the reasons I sort of connected this topic with my interests is because I think comedy has similar associations. Comedy is often seen as being, you know, contemporary and referential and sort of ephemeral. And all of those things are sort of problematic as far as art goes. Art has this perception of being universal and eternal and sort of existing outside of the modern moment. Yeah, which I I think, like, I believe all three of us would agree that art does not actually necessarily or even usually exist outside of, it does exist in contexts. Like, Right. But that is, I completely agree that that is sort of, you know, the romantic ideal of art. Yeah. Oh, do we want to get into the romantics? God. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I was going to say with the like comedy, I think comedy is it's such an interesting it fits into such an interesting place, you know, art versus content, because like I would say in terms of like content that people consume, however you want to define content, uh, like I think comedy is probably one of the most broadly consumed kind of styles of content, whether, you know, it's sitcoms or funny vines or memes, whatever you want to yeah. kind of identify. I think it is, if not the most, one of the most broadly consumed kind of genres of content. So I think that it fits into this art versus content thing weirdly because it, it clearly is an art. I don't think there are many people that would say, oh, you know, there's no artistic whatever to comedy but I also no. don't think there's a ton of people that would call comedy and hold comedy to the same kind of gilded standard that they do of a lot of art. Yeah, I think part of that might have to do with sort of, like Scott was mentioning, the sort of in-the-moment nature of comedy, right? Like you think of your favorite song, and your favorite song is a pretty durable work of art. It's, it's something that you can go back and revisit and will have more and more meaning to you. But, like, for the most part, jokes work best when you don't know what's coming. And so, and there, there are certainly jokes that hold up to multiple viewings. But if you go back and listen to the same stand-up set every day for a month, by the end of it, you're just, you're going to know what's coming. And you're going to know how it goes in ways that I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily find rewarding in comedy in the same way that they would, like, listening to an album over and over. And so 
that's not to say that I agree that that makes it less art or anything, to be clear. I think that comedy is a perfectly valid form of art, but I think that sort of the association people have with it does lean into that more sort of disposable aspect because it's harder to revisit over time. Yeah, and that's definitely an argument that that comes up a lot against, like as a mark against comedy as art, is that it doesn't have that replayability. Um, and there, also there's something about it that's sort of um, sort of instant, uh, where your yeah. com- the reaction is just something that's very instant and almost automatic and not necessarily something you think about for a long time or you have to stare at a painting yeah. for an hour and then go home and think about it and then revisit it later. That's not what comedy is about. No. I think it's so interesting, though, because I think there's also, like, there's so many forms of art that are instant and are, like, so much about that visceral feeling. Like, I would say that, like, there is a lot of stuff where it's recorded in the field of jazz, but I think that jazz, a lot of jazz, especially live jazz performances, are so much about that instant feeling of just like in the moment and really any sort of improvisational music is about that instant and is kind of like celebrated for its fleetingness. So I think there's kind of a bit of a double standard there, right? Where there are, there are so many people that will, you know, praise the fact that a live concert experience is a singular one-time experience. And that's the same as a piece of comedy media that you're not going to revisit a ton. I'll, I'll say though, also, I've heard kind of an alternate argument about jazz and improvisation that it's sort of not as good because it's not this intellectual, like you sat down and you notated out all of these ideas and worked on them and thought about them. And it was just in the moment you you had this idea to play that note. And I know that's not that's not true. That's not how that works. Yeah. Like there's all this yeah. work that goes no, into it. But I've heard that argument as well. That's so interesting. I haven't I haven't heard that argument before. I, that's such an interesting perspective. Where I think like ultimately it gets into something that Corey and I have talked about before. And I think this does play into the evaluation of art because I think that something that kind of gets praised for evaluating stuff as art is the idea of virtuosity or talent. Yeah. When in reality, like, I don't think, I mean, what qualifies as talent can be any number of things. Like we've talked about, like, there is a lot of talent to, you know, Steve Vai playing the guitar. He's technically incredibly talented. There's also a lot of talent to to Kurt Cobain playing the guitar, and he is technically very rudimentary, but there's a different sort of talent there. And I think that perspective on jazz kind of misses the fact that what's impressive about, you know, a Paul McCartney who's able to sit down and compose this perfect three-minute pop masterpiece is different than what's impressive about, you know, Coltrane improvising or something like that. And there's no value on one or the other. They're just two different expressions of musical capability. And I think to sort of bring this back to the art versus content thing, I think that that's also sort of somewhat the boundary between those two is like how much you get it, how much you can recognize the artistry that goes into making the thing. And that's not to say that like there is all equal artistry that goes into making all forms of content because I don't know how you would even begin to measure that. Right. But like, I think that if you 
are engaging with the medium, especially like as someone who makes YouTube videos professionally and views what I do as art, if I feel like not necessarily like I'm better at recognizing this in other things, but I think I'm more inclined to recognize other people's video work as art just because, you know, it validates my own experience and makes me feel good about what I'm doing. I was just going to say, I also think in video work, it's really interesting because there's a lot of content that I watch. That There's a lot that I watch that I would say is art and content. There's also stuff that I watch that I would say is content and would probably self-identify as content, but is really, really like it is. It shows all of the tenets that you would kind of qualify for art. You know, it shows craft. Yeah. It shows concept of narrative and pacing and all these technical things. Like some, a channel that comes to mind for me is Answer in Progress, formerly sure. Sabrina, like fantastic, fantastic kind of pop science video essay channel. And it's something that I th- I think in my mind, I would fit it firmly in content. And yet there's so much artistic craft to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the boundaries if there are blurry boundaries at all between these things, I mean, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I think one of the lines that you can kind of walk down is self-expression. But even then, a lot of content has a ton of self-expression in there. So, yeah. Yeah, I always get nervous when we start, like, not we specifically, but when people start throwing self-expression around as an artistic criterion, because, like, how do you measure that? Yeah. Like, how do you know whether I'm expressing myself in drawing cartoon elephants about music theory. Yeah. Like you have to know me pretty well, but people watching my videos mostly only know me through drawing cartoon elephants about music theory. So how do they determine if that's the real Corey? As far as self-expression goes, that just kind of really makes me think of authenticity. Yep. I have a real issue with authenticity <laughs> conceptually and I actually I did listen I I listened to your episode on authenticity yeah. I did listen to it yeah. and I actually I know I watched your video on Bo Burnham and Arcade Fire and I wanted to raise a point with you kind of generally about authenticity yeah which I think actually fits pretty well into this conversation and that's basically like we know it, it's it's sort of a fiction. Like authenticity is, yeah. it's the perception of authenticity. It's That's all we yeah. can know is does this seem yeah. authentic? But obviously we like it. We prefer that. So like yeah. this, that kind of self-expression is seen as a positive thing in art, but it doesn't have to be. It's like a totally arbitrary characteristic. Yeah, I think it's, it's yeah. an aesthetic, like authenticity is an aesthetic just like, you know, polish is an aesthetic, yeah. right? I mean, it, once again, I blame the romantics. <laughs> right. And I think you said something about Beyonce and basically like Beyonce, her authenticity, maybe she likes dancing and she likes singing and that's her expressing herself, her authentic self. And, you know, my thought is, you know, whether she does or doesn't, say she does, okay? And then we have we perceive yeah. that she does. That's yeah. good. That matches. That works out. Say she doesn't. Say she hates it, but we perceive it as she does. Like, is there a difference between those things? I don't really think so. Like, in I, yeah. I think it's it's kind of like the, you know, like, you go to see a band in concert. They are playing, you know, their eighth show in ten nights. They have no idea 
what city they're in. They're exhausted, yeah. overworked, but they play songs that personally mean stuff to you. And so you perceive yeah. them as, oh, that was fantastic. They really like, you can tell they care about their music. And it's like, well, maybe they do, but maybe you just care about their music because ultimately, yeah. like, obviously it is a great day job and it's really cool, but it is still a day job for these people. Like, like that is yeah. the, you know, even when you've got a job you love, it's still work. And I'm sure every artist yeah. who has ever gone on tour, there are sets that they have performed that everyone in the audience has said, oh my God, they were really feeling it tonight and they completely were not. So yeah, I think I think I'm I'm of the opinion like I think I agree with you that it doesn't it doesn't really matter if it actually is quote unquote authentic or is self-expression if we're able to perceive it that way. I will say as someone who spent some time trying to be a professional performing musician, it's not always a great day job. Yeah. <laughs> sure. But I think this sort of comes down to the difference between sort of self-expression and self-reflection where like we say we're looking for you to authentically express yourself, but what we're looking for is you to authentically reflect what we want yourself to be. Mm-hmm. And we judge that based on your other work and based on our experience of your other work and also our own personal experiences of what we're looking for. And it's not necessarily connected to who you are as a person. It's who we imagine you to be. It's a whole parasocial thing. And actually on the Bo Burnham thing, like that's something that Bo Burnham in Inside and really in all of his work, like really dives into kind of dissecting this image of him as an authentic artist or, you know, as like the like that sort of diving into know what you're seeing is just a projection. I think Bo Burnham's what was even in his earlier work was really one of the first artists that I saw kind of talking about that sort of parasocial behavior and how with Bo Burnham, it's so weird because it's gone into this levels of meta where it's like he in admitting that he knows that he is doing fake authenticity. He is creating the illusion of a deeper level of authenticity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Acknowledging that it's fake is just making it more real. But it's it's funny because even with when Inside came out, there was a sort of like a backlash from some people being like, uh, you know, oh, what happened was something came out in the news where people found out, oh, he lives with this his partner, his girlfriend, yeah. or his wife, and they're like, yeah. but wait, where was she? Was he actually living alone in this space? And where was he getting his food? <laughs> and like, who was doing this? And it's like, why are you asking any of these questions? How is that relevant to yeah. your enjoyment of of Inside? Wait, you're telling me that Mark Hamill can't use the force? Well, <laughs> let's not say things we can't take back. <laughs> it's such an interesting thing because that's that's a problem that is created by the kind of nature of Inside as a special because like yeah. no one's going to look at, you know, any other movie and say, "Wait, you're telling me that this stuff that they filmed carefully and shot beautifully <laughs> is not just authentic documentation of the real world. I'd even think with a normal comedy stand-up special, I think most people would acknowledge, I'm sure that, I'm sure there's 
truth to a lot of stories that people tell, but I'm, I think a lot of people yeah. would acknowledge, oh no, you know, this great stand-up story of this wild thing that happens is probably blown out of proportion and exaggerated to, you know, A, be funny, but also kind of like tell the truth of how something felt in the moment. And I think that's yeah. what Inside is doing. Well, there's sort of a cliche too in stand-up comedy where like, you know how many jokes start like, this just happened to me today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, did it? Uh, you've been telling this joke yeah. for six months. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the authenticity and, you know, self-expression, it's such a weird, like, I feel like it's, it's almost easy to get yourself, like, caught up going round in circles and, like, going mad trying to figure out if something actually is authentic or not, because ultimately you just, you just can't, that's something you can't yeah. know. So like you said, like, ultimately I think what matters is the perception of authenticity and is the way that authenticity, perceived authenticity allows you to create human connections on some level. And again, that human connections is such a broad wishy-washy term but it's another one that is often used in descriptions of you know the difference between art and content you know art is humanistic and is you know connecting you with the grand human experience and content is just content in a lot of yeah. perceptions talk about like having soul right like not not as, like in like the musical sense but like we look at you know, when we talk about channels as like content farms, yeah. what we mean is that there's, and uh, yeah, I, my default when I think about content is always YouTube and that's for very good and hopefully <laughs> obvious reasons. But, um, but like when we talk about like a content farm, what we mean is that there's not like, it doesn't have a heart. It doesn't have soul. There's no one there who's like passionate and just wants to tell you about this sort of thing. You know, like the, like the banana tape to the wall. <laughs> exactly. Like that's just so much a soul. thing that happened. But but, but then yeah. I think it's kind of funny to use, especially the term soul in this, because like that's what soul music is in its kind yeah. like Motown soul. Motown was literally designed to be assembly line music, you know, where it was oh, for sure. designed to have people be interchangeable. It was purely kind of a business venture. Like it was like Barry Gordy modeled Motown after like, like his idol was like Henry Ford. Like it yeah. was this, you yeah. know, hyper capitalization, hyper kind of contentification of music. But then, I mean, I don't think there is anybody that would tell you that any of the great Motown girl groups did not have soul, did not have humanity, yeah. were not art. Like, I think Motown, I've ha had a lot of these discussions of like, you know, commerciality versus art viability and stuff like that. And Motown is always such an example that really complicates any attempts to, you know, have a simple line between art and commerce, because I don't think anyone would tell you that Motown isn't really art. No. But it was expressly made to be content. <laughs> yeah. I think an interesting kind of connection is something that I thought a lot about is novelty songs. Mm. Where, and, and the idea yes. with novelty songs kind of fit sort of into more like a content type object where it's something that is maybe like kind of ephemeral and 
also has maybe an economic interest, like you're trying to react to some current event or situation and cash in on that. And you're not necessarily thinking about creating like a hearty piece of art that's going to last for a long time. I think novelty songs are, they're such an interesting place too, because like you look at probably kind of the last huge novelty song was Old Town Road was probably the last like very big one. and that was a novelty song that was very kind of expressly like you can look into how Lil Nas X like exploited the charts and stuff like that. But it's so interesting because that was a strategy for him to launch into this music career where he now, again, what is the perception of authenticity? But he is now doing music that at least is not, it's not like overtly novelty music it's music that you can make the argument has that whatever you want to call it that authenticity that you know self-expression or whatever and creating this novelty song was a clear you know like planned step on the way to achieving that goal yeah and i mean he even talks about that in like interviews where he'll talk about like how once he was signed right after Old Town Road and they started putting it with producers and they just kept showing up with these like, you know, like country beats and things like that that sounded like Old Town Road. And he was very specifically and like purposefully like, no, I'm not just going to do that. That like that was fun, but I need to be other things too. I can't pigeonhole myself with this. And so also stepping out of that was also a strategy. Yeah. was a way of sort of leaving not letting himself become just the dude who did Old Town Road and things like Old Town Road and pushing himself and pushing his image to be more well-rounded, which we perceive as more authentic. And, you know, again, I'm not saying it's not, but what matters is that we perceive as if it is. And, like, on the novelty thing, like, there are a lot of songs that are novelty songs by whatever definition you want to call that and transcend to be bigger things. Like Rapper's Delight was a novelty song and that is often considered like the first, you know, hip hop recording. It was a novelty song in kind of the late disco era, which by the way, like disco novelty songs are just amazing. (laughs) The number of disco (laughs) duck, like the number of amazing disco novelty songs. I love novelty disco songs. They're super surreal and hilarious. (laughs) But Rapper's Delight was, you know, it was a savvy young executive seeing this rising rap thing and being like, oh, uh, you know, I'm going to get a group together. And they weren't like really like the Sugar Hill Gang were kind of created to record this song. And there were lots of other people doing rap at the time, but they just didn't really have access to studios and labels and stuff like that. And so that is a song that is basically a novelty song that became one of the most important recordings ever because it's the first, you know, successful hip hop song. Yeah, it opened the door. Yeah. Right. Within the industry, not again, like you say, a lot of people were already doing hip hop, doing like rap and, but rappers delight very much opened the door for them to have access to distribution and recording in ways that weren't previously available. Yeah. And I want to add, I, I think uh, Lil Nas X and Old Town Road is great. I love that song. Even if it is a novelty song, even if it's the most contrived thing, like whatever, just purely economically driven, I still think it's fantastic. And I think 
you know, good for him. But like, there is this preference, like you don't want to see that really. You don't want to see the yeah. the cogs working inside the machine yeah. going, well, if we if we want this song to be a hit, we should put a banjo on it, right? People are going to yeah. react yeah. to that. Not think, it. Not, it's not like my heart tells me this song is calling yeah. for a banjo. Yeah. And that's the that's the <laughs> preference. You know, you want this sort of yeah. soulful and somewhat like mysterious artistic process, not economically yeah. motivated. Art is almost seen like held up in some circles as almost like a shamanic process where you're like communing with the muses to create this stuff, yeah. not, you know, strategically thinking this stuff. You, no one no one likes seeing how the sausage is actually made. Right. Yeah, and I think that like when we talk about art versus content, I think for a lot of people one of the big distinctions there like you're mentioning is that content has this commercial aspect to it and we like to imagine that art doesn't. But of course, we live in a world with an art market, we live in a world with a music industry, and so people who are professional artists have to think commercially, but then we don't want them to and we we want them to hide that. And we also want them, I think- Or at least sort of present it ironically. Yes. Yeah. Like a knowing yeah. irony, like, yes, this is commercial, but I'm kind of winking, you know, that commerce yeah. is bad, even though I'm participating in it. Yeah, something like uh, the Sex Pistols EMI comes to mind. Just to contextualize that for people, they they signed to a label and then immediately recorded a song about how much they hated that particular label. Yeah. Uh, which, you know- they still got signed to the label. They still took the money. Right. So that's something I see in in a lot of content, in a lot of like YouTube videos. The advertisers, yeah. like a lot of, and a lot of these people are my, are my peers. I don't blame them for yeah. any of this. But like, you know, the, I do. I blame all of them. Uh oh. Just if you're listening to this and you're a YouTuber, it's your fault. Go on, Noah. <laughs> They'll do this thing where they do this, you know, kind of like fake tongue in cheek. Oh, look how dumb ads are while reading an ad, you know, yeah. like increasingly I see that. But the fact that they are still reading this ad and still getting this ad means that the ad is doing its job. It's working, yeah. And if anything, the fake tongue-in-cheek, oh, ads are dumb as I do this ad read, makes that ad more successful because it makes people think, oh, I'm not actually being advertised to. They just have to do this. But, like... I know how the industry works because it's how I make a living. Yeah. If your ads aren't converting, you don't make money. Yeah, you know, they like don't pay you. <laughs> and if they don't convert, then they won't ask you to do more ads for them. So clearly these ads that are, you know, tongue in cheek dismissing the content aspect of this stuff are still converting and are still playing into that engine. Yeah, and even if when it's not like explicitly tongue in cheek, like I hate doing ads, but let's do an ad for what, like, even when it's just, you know, a more neutral ad read, there's still usually a part of it that's like, oh, and it, like following this will help support the channel and will help make me personally able to continue doing this, which is true. I don't want to yeah. say this is a bad thing because this is a large part of how I make my living as well. But like there, there's still this sort of playing off the more humanistic connection that is developed through the artistic side of the work in order to make it more effective as a commercialized piece of content, which I'm going to get in trouble with a lot of my friends for saying that. Oh, but again, no. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. And it's fine. None of my friends listen to this podcast except maybe Noah. I don't know. But, <laughs> <laughs> Good. but no, I, I think that there's an extent to which 
again, this complicates the boundaries between art and content because they're synergistic. In addition to being overlapping, your ability to do successful content in part often relies on your ability to present it as meaningful art. Right. And that's, I mean, that's marketing, really. Yeah. I don't think artists like to call it marketing because that's too commercial, but that's what it is. I mean, call it context, contextualization, whatever word you want to use, but you're basically, you're saying the same thing. You're trying to sell an idea, if not an actual product, like a painting or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that kind of makes the art versus content thing feel more salient now than it ever has been. Because, I mean, not not necessarily, but I, I think that to a significant extent in the digital age, like the content of that content creators create isn't like the videos we make or the posts we do. It's us. It's the people doing it. I think that much more so than any particular video I make, the content that I make is 12-tone. And... And that, that's not to say that this has never happened, right? That, that's what Beatlemania was. And yeah. Like all these. But I think to a greater extent now, that's sort of the default. I think one of the things that is different about that now, and one of the reasons that is the default, is that it used to be, for most of history, like, you know, an artistic relationship, if you want to call it that, is between the artists and the people that handle the commerce side. So, you know, with yeah. the, with the Beatles, that's Epstein, you know, with Raphael, that's his patrons or whatever, right? Sure. With a band, that's the label. But now- With Raphael, it's Splinter. But, <laughs> you know, thank you. <laughs> but, but now in the age where, for a number of reasons, whether it's, you know, technology, economic trends, things like this- Every artist is also their publicist, is also their manager. And there are still publicists and managers, but even people that have them are still conscious of this and still doing this themselves. Because that's something that extends beyond even art. With social media, it's something that's just baked into our kind of existence online is us selling ourselves and creating an image for ourselves. Like that is, that's what it is to be online and that's yeah. what it is to, you know, that's what the the business side of th- things, the marketing side of things is. So I think it's because of because of the fact that everyone is their own PR team now. It's a lot more kind of this conversation is a lot more pressing because it always has been this way. But more explicitly, it's not actually a dialogue between you know, David Bowie wanting to do experimental stuff and his label saying, no, you should do, you know, more commercial stuff. It's the pull between me wanting to do more expensive videos and me saying, no, I need to make rent. You know, what I'm saying is yeah, I'm yeah. David Bowie. <laughs> sure. Yeah, basically you are the David Bowie of YouTube, yes. I've always said. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that a large part of that is like, there's sort of the independence and the accessibility as well, like where you have... It is much easier to reach me than it ever was to reach John Lennon as a fan. Yeah. And that is not to say that I'm at the level of fame that John Lennon had. Are you saying you're bigger than Jesus? Jesus? (laughs) I mean, yes, but smaller than John Lennon. I'm in in that space in between. Um, But no, like, I, I think that because, like, I'm active on Twitter, I have, like, a public email, like, I don't. I very visibly don't have a team managing this stuff for me. Whereas I think that if you go back to like major artists of like the 70s, 80s, whatever, like there was sort of this 
tacit understanding that like if you sent letters to David Bowie, yeah, someone else was reading them first. If they ever got to him, someone else read them first. Mm-hmm. In the seventies, you kind of even had these like managers that became celebrities themselves, yeah. like Peter Grant for Led Zeppelin, right? Like yeah. people were very aware of and saw the artifice there. Yeah. Whereas I think for and again, it, it's sort of it's hard to compare directly because you know I'm comparing you know YouTube level celebrity with Led Zeppelin level celebrity. And they're not the same thing. But, like, even for people like us, like, Noah and I both have a manager. But, yes. like, very explicitly, his job is not to run interference between us and our audience. Because that would look very bad for us. And also because he doesn't have time. But, yeah. you know, partly, <laughs> partly a large part of, like, why, like, that works is that, like, he's, he's there to do sort of the commerce side of things but very explicitly not there to be involved in any of the more human interactions. He is explicitly hands-off on that, and he should be, but it's sort of, it's a different vibe. I would also say that, like, often, not always, but I do think that the commercial pressure can help art be better because fundamentally it is a limitation on art. And I think limitations on art tend to be good. Like, you don't want art to be completely limited. You don't want to entirely prevent what people are able to say with their art. But in general, when you force people into boxes, people are more creative about how to fit into those boxes. And I think you see it in, like, a a lot of pop music has been incredibly experimental, incredibly influential, because of the way that it is able to fit these complex ideas and weird esoteric things into a box that will appeal to more people or will have more reach. Like, I think these pressures, I think there's a balance. Like, I don't think that everyone should entirely be thinking about these things, and I don't think everyone should be not thinking about them at all, but I think the pressures are, I think there is often positive outcomes from that. I agree with that, totally. And, I mean, I don't think most people think about that very much. That's kind of another element of this whole conversation is that I think your average media consumer, whatever you want to call them, they're not really looking for any kind of aesthetic affirmation, any kind of, you know, capital A, this is art, I'm sure of it, I like it. Um, They're just, you know, they're listening to what's out there. They're watching the movies that are available to them. And there's not necessarily um, so much worry about the distinction, but there are people out there who, you know, maybe us included, are sort of yeah. hyper fixated on <laughs> on culture and um, really categorizing these things like that. And I think sometimes we get in our head and kind of forget, like, do normal people do these things? Like, are we are we like relating to <laughs> the average music fan? Yeah, no, I mean, this is just... No, surely it's the children who are wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think by volume, and I suspect Noah has had similar experiences, although I can correct me if I'm wrong, but by volume, the most frequent criticism that I get on my song analysis videos is that the band didn't think of that, they just played what sounded good. Oh, and yeah. that All you should just time. you know shut yeah. up and listen to the music. Maybe do some drugs if that helps, sure. depending on the genre. But like that, there is no point in thinking about it. That you can just sort of experience it, and that's good enough. And I think it, it is good enough. Like I don't want to 
come across as elitist of being like, oh no, if you're not like making 20 minute video essays about three and a half minute songs, like I'm currently <laughs> stuck in the middle of, then you're, you're not a real music fan. Like that's, I don't, I don't want to be like that because my life was a mistake, but you know, <laughs> I feel like if you, if you could know everything you could know about a song just by listening to it, why are you looking up 20 minute long essays about yeah. it on YouTube? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's exactly it. Like that's, also, like, knowing this stuff, it might change your experience of the song, but I really genuinely hope it wouldn't lessen your experience of the song yeah. anyway. The wild thing is that I can actually, I have spent hours and hours looking at all of this music and stuff like that, and sometimes I will just listen to a song and be like, oh, I like sound that song make. And, <laughs> you know, that's great. Yeah, that's equally no. valid. No, it's definitely, like... There's some songs that like I don't even necessarily want to analyze, partly because like not not because I feel like I would lose the mystique of it, but because I I feel like I enjoy the naive experience of it or the sort of the personal experience of it more than I would enjoy breaking it down, if that makes sense. Sure, or at least the amount of times you would have to listen to it to uh yeah. to yeah. do that work yeah, might that kill some that of too. the enjoyment of it. Corey and yeah. I have talked about how I really genuinely don't consume, uh, don't believe that the act of consuming this stuff can like lessen your experience with the art. I will tell you the act of creating it can. And again, yeah. like to bring us back to the art content divide, like ostensibly kind of like, I think one of the issues there is when you take something that you experience as art and you make content about it, you kind of, what you're kind of doing is you're taking this piece of art and molding it into this form for your content. You're playing around yeah. with the art. You are picking and choosing the arguments that you want to make, the arguments you don't want to make. There's always a thousand choices. Like, it's never that Corey and I are reporting objective facts. No. Sometimes this molding well, that has <laughs> objective facts. But, but ultimately, it's that we are morphing this art into this piece of content. And I think for for us, that I think that can change the yeah. experience of it. But I really don't think that watching a piece of content can ruin the experience of listening to a piece of music. Well, I mean, it, watching a piece of content like ours, right? Like, I think that... Yeah, yeah. There are things you can learn about pieces of music and especially about the artists who made pieces of music. That's true. That can make it harder to enjoy that music. And that's, you know, there's an extent to which, like, I feel like those are still good things to learn, like, especially in the context of, like, problematic faves and whatever, which yeah. is probably, we should probably just do a whole episode about that at some point. But, like, you know, the, especially in that area, like, you, you can argue that, yeah, this is stuff you should know if you're going to engage with the artist. But there is, like, I understand people wanting to protect their ignorance around that sort of yeah. thing and like be like, well, if I don't know it, then it's not, then I can still enjoy this thing. And I'm not, you know, I don't have to wrestle with whether I'm a bad person for enjoying it. And, you know, I, I get that. I understand that desire, but like, that's, that's not what my videos are. So it's only tangentially relevant. I just, you know, in uh, that's what some of my videos are, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's interesting too, because to bring this back to comedy, the, big thing that they say about comedy though which is again very different than like 
Corey and I, our entire job is breaking down the art that we love. The big thing they say about comedy is the, you know, the dissecting the frog thing, right? You see how it works, yeah, but the yeah. joke is dead. And I think that is something that is very unique to comedy as a form of art is the fact, and again, maybe this is why it's not kind of like held to the same lofty standards as, you know, capital A art. Part of it might be because the kind of, you know, academic discourse and discussion that often leads to these artistic movements getting names and celebrations and stuff like that is the kind of stuff that can really really like ruin a joke if you see how it works yeah i i know you're talking the expression i think is like explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog it's not funny and you don't i don't even know wait what is it it's you find (laughs) out how it works but the frog's still dead at the end something like no one has a good time it's something like that yeah yeah i don't agree with that i mean from my experience sort of being in a comedy adjacent world and knowing a lot of writers and comedians, people who very much know how comedy works, they appreciate it more. And I think it's the same thing with music. Like if you have a really good appreciation of music, even if it's sort of a, you can sort of point out formulaically like, oh, this song is going to modulate here and the chorus is going to come back. That doesn't ruin the experience of it for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think when when you see comedians, like when you see interviews with famous great comedians and stuff, they're always talking about like they are they're always dissecting, you know, George Carlin or whoever is their big idol. They, like they're always dissecting what makes that work. And that's that's how you get good at something is by looking at the people that are great at it and figuring out what they did to become great. I think it's something that in over the last couple of years, I've been working on writing a lot, um, been working on a couple manuscripts and stuff like that. And mm. like so much of it is this space of like, you know, there's this idea that you just kind of, you know, stories come to you out of the blue and then you write them and they are yeah. these beautiful free expressions. But so much of the writing process is dissecting and being like, OK, we are at this point in the story what is an emotional beat that will hit well, that will help with the pacing? Right. You know, oh, we are at this point of the story. You know, this tends to be, and again, not everything needs to follow the hero's journey. Like there's lots of different yeah. potential story arcs and stuff out there, but there is- but Noah, it's the monomyth. Yeah. <laughs> they're cliches, but they're cliches for a reason. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that comes like even when you're not like like you say a lot of writers do think about and a lot of musicians do think about this stuff as well more than people give them credit for. But also like even even people who don't, even people who are very intuitive in their songwriting, are able to be intuitive because they've spent a lot of time listening to the music they love, playing the music they love, and sort of subconsciously internalizing the tropes of the music they love. And so like when you're thinking like how do I get this cool dramatic sound here? you know what library of chords, harmony, or what uh, uh, chords are harmony. What am I talking about? <laughs> but, you know, you you know you have all of these tools that you can pull from that, like, dynamics and sort of section changes, melodic notes, all of these things that you can lyrics. do. Lyrics. Well, I mean, does anyone pay attention to lyrics? But, you know. <laughs> but, you, but yeah, you, you, know, you know what works because you've listened to so many things that work. And it's when you don't have that, when you are just trying to build music from first principles, you get the shags. And like, I love the shags. The shags are great. Yeah. 
but there's like the shags are not you know they're not nirvana right they're not yeah. like the sorts of bands that you just you put on to listen to for fun in in that same sort of way because they're so weird and because they're so out there and because it's so requires so much attention to figure out what they're doing because what they're doing doesn't isn't based on learning the rules that everyone else learned. I'm always so interested to with someone like the Shags, like there is this weird dichotomy where, you know, the Shags in a very different way, but they're kind of in yeah. the in the same like, you know, aesthetic ballpark as someone like Captain Beefheart or, sure. you know, who is one of the most like, you know, talented visionary musicians of his generation explicitly trying to kind of like with trained, really talented musicians, telling them to break the rules, having them play off time, having them do this stuff that the shags kind of come to naively. This is not even really on topic for what we're talking about. It's just, it's such an interesting dichotomy that again, like kind of gets to the fact that None of this happens like we like to romanticize it. You know, nobody spontaneously comes up with stuff. Yeah. This reminds me of something that I was thinking about recently with um, the Beatles. We keep talking about, obviously, always everyone, it all comes back to the Beatles. But there's the scene in Get Back where Paul is composing Get Back, like on the spot. You're kind of watching it happen. Yes. And the thing that really fascinated me is the reaction to that scene there was an article, I don't remember where it was where it was run, but it was interviewing like 10 or 15 musicians and songwriters about that scene. And it was really interesting because half of them watched it and said, this is amazing. He's basically, you know, creating magic out of thin air. Like he's being yeah. inspired and it's just flowing through him. And then the other half of them said, he is such a good songwriter. He's worked so hard. He knows how to try things and discard things and then insert things. He knows how this chord will go to this chord. And they thought about it in this methodical, yes, this is work and he has experience. He's a professional. Of course, you know, you're watching it. It's still amazing to watch him do this because this song is a song that we've all heard a million times at this point. And this is the moment where it kind of crystallized. But there's still that split, even within like, professional musicians and songwriters. That's so funny. They still want to see it as like this divine inspiration. In general, like like that scene in particular, but in general, like throughout throughout Get Back, the development of that song and just a lot of the songs in general, you really do see how the Beatles play the, you know, art and commerce of it, the art and whatever you want to call it, the entertainment or content or whatever, you see the Beatles kind of being like, oh, well, you know, this is a place where I was thinking that we'd have a middle eight that would do this thing, you know, or you, you look at get back that song and you see them try it with so many different lyrical approaches. Like they're trying all of these different lyrics, all of these different, you know, sounds for it. And you see other songs of theirs kind of written in very, not so spontaneous in like, kind of like, long drawn out processes and it's all very much kind of leaning into that same space of that there is this balance with the Beatles where like they they want to artistically do these songs they also want to do songs that they know people will listen to 
Yeah, and on that scene, and I I haven't seen all of Get Back. I never got around to it, but I have seen clips of that scene. And one of the things that was really striking to me and that I saw uh, people commenting on as well is like, if you look at the other Beatles there, well, Paul is doing that. They're not like awestruck. No. Yeah. Like George is sitting there. He looks bored. He's he's just, okay, all right, we're doing this. And, you know, eventually it's like, okay, this is good. But he's it's not like, oh my God, Paul, how did you do that? This is work. This, this is was an amazing job. strike of divine inspiration. It's like, wow, Paul, thank you for doing the job that we have come here to do yeah. and doing it well so that we can move on. <laughs> I think that reaction also speaks to the way that we bring, like, like our perception of something as art is so decided by culture and historical yeah. context and stuff like that, where it's like, if there was that exact same cut for a song that was just left on the cutting room floor, we'd be our yeah. response would be like, oh, it's cool to see Paul McCartney write a song. Our response would not be, yeah. oh my God, like watch him write this thing. Yeah. I mean, what he was playing wasn't Get Back yet. Yeah. And if Get Back had never been a song, that would have been like, all right, that's fine. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but because it became Get Back, we are experiencing it as him writing Get Back. Exactly. Even um, so within the Beatles, even I think this maybe has changed in the last few years. But I know when I was younger, there was a perception that like Paul was the entertainer and John was the artist. So there yeah. was this yeah. divide even within the band for like the highbrow, lowbrow kind of perception. Yeah, it's something that's been like, I think lately and it's it's good that it's happening this way now, but I think lately the perception of Paul has been changing a bit where it's less, you know, uh, th there's been a lot more celebration of his ability to write, to compose, you know, like he's kind of, in, in my mind, whereas like, you know, John Lennon in my mind is like a like, you know, Miles Davis or something like that. Like Paul McCartney is more like a Duke Ellington. Yeah, yeah I think like if we want want to talk about like Beatles whose reputations have changed over time. We sort of have to talk about Ringo, right? Like, yes. For a long time, there's this, you know, this idea, well, <laughs> but like of, of like John is the visionary. Paul is like the entertainer. George is the virtuoso and Ringo's the drummer. And, <laughs> and so, but like over time, I think there's, there's been this reevaluation of just like, you know, he wasn't doing like these wild, crazy things that Neil Peart did. Or to, to pick like one yeah. like famous drummer, Moon like Neil Peart, or, or even someone like Keith Moon. But like, if you go back and listen, he was doing interesting things and he was doing things that made the song work. And that I think, I, I don't know how well this ties back to the art first content thing. We're pretty far off that trail at this point, and that's fine. Disagree. But like, uh, <laughs> true, true. But like, I think that there, there's an extent to which, you know, when we're looking for art, we're looking for that sort of, Again, like Noah was saying earlier, this, we have this association with virtuosity and with like being able to see the passion in it. Whereas, like when we look at content, a lot of it is just like it's functional, it does its job, and it's good at doing its job. And Ringo, that was something he was really good at was not necessarily playing the most complicated or the most interesting drum groove, but the right drum groove. Right, yeah. but that takes a certain amount of nuance to to appreciate. So I think that's why it yeah. kind of went unnoticed for such a long time. Whereas like virtuosity, any of us can go, yeah. whoa, that guy played a hundred notes really fast. And it's kind of like, okay, he has some technical skill. It's really easy to endorse that. Yeah. It's yeah. easy to see. And so it feels more art. In theory. I think, 
Yeah, it, it's it's funny to me too because I mean th- this is something similar to Ringo Starr. You kind of talked about hand in hand. Like I did a whole video on Meg White, who is very much the same yeah. as Ringo, where it was kind of butt of the jokes. Uh, you know, oh, like you know, she's a bad drummer and blah blah blah. But again, in reality, it's like no, her her drumming it might not be as technical as a Neil Peart or a Buddy Rich or whatever. Um, but what it is, is perfectly constructed for the sound that the White Stripes wanted to do. And that is yeah. that is genius in its own way. Yeah, we're getting pretty far off the art and content, but this is Ghost <laughs> Notes. So something yeah. that I think bears, you know, mentioning in, in the like eternal art versus commerce thing we said this at the beginning, but I, I don't know if we ever really said this like explicitly clearly. Everything is both. Everything yeah. is both art and commerce because ultimately we live in a world where commerce is the vehicle through which art gets seen. Content gets seen. And ultimately the goal of most artists or a goal, I don't think this is the singular goal, but a goal of most artists is to have somebody see their art. And necessarily the world that we live in, that means playing the content game. Yeah. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, nothing's entirely a good thing or a bad thing. It's probably a bit of both. But the art and content divide is not actually a divide. It's too necessary aspects of approach to reach the end that I think most artists want where I can't speak for all of them, but I think most artists, they want to make stuff and they want to share the stuff that they make with people. That's the art and content divide. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And I think if you, if you really buy into like a lot of aesthetic theories, um, like people like, you know, Kant said like, the only really pure art would be art that you didn't show anyone, kind of. You know, if you were only yeah, making yeah. it for yourself because it's, it is what, you know, you needed to make f- to be express yourself and had no interest in showing anyone else, that would be, like, the most pure art. Which is, it's wild to me because, like, I, I do that. I, like, I'm, I suspect most musicians do that to some extent where they'll, they'll just write songs for themselves and never share it with anyone but I'm way prouder of the work I do on 12 tone than I am any of that work because I like, I put so much more effort into it and I spend so much more time and polish on it. And I think it's better, but you know, I do have that sort of quote unquote pure art sitting on my hard drive, but you know, that's not how I define myself as an artist, you know, I'm going to start the hashtag release the 12 tone tapes. Uh Mm, No one wants to hear those. (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's also, there's one other kind of thing that, I think might be relevant is art as sort of a a quality instead of like a category. Yeah. Like people sort of just calling things that they like and that are good art. And I think that kind of confuses yeah. a lot of the yeah. discussion and it's sort of like what are we even saying anymore? You know, yeah. none of the, none of this means anything. Words don't mean anything <laughs> anymore. No. I will regularly refer to memes to a meme that I f- find very funny as high art. You know, yeah. right. But at the same I think time, I referred to emails as art when they're like, you know, I, was, I'd have to dig it up. But it was um, an email that a friend of mine, a sponsor email that like someone did a cold outreach and just like screwed up so many different aspects of it that I was just like, this is art. This is beautiful. I love it. 
And I, I would yeah. have to look it up to remember exactly what it was. And I'm not going to do that right now. But yeah. I would say, though, at the same time, it's, though, like a meme could be art in a very real, non-ironic way. Oh, or like, totally. you know, yeah. you could yeah. hang that in a museum. You could frame it. You could be proud of it. You could, I mean, there are people who, you know, print out their tweets and hang it in a modern art museum. That's art, you know, because yeah. they say it yeah. is. But like that ironic sort of funny qualitative usage of art, it's just kind of like making a real messy situation <laughs> of the word. Yeah. Yeah, no, people, stop referring to things colloquially, please. It makes our job harder. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I... <laughs> the memes being art debate is, that's something, it's not exactly a ghost notes topic, but it's something that I have lots of thoughts on. That's a really inter interesting debate going on right now. And I, I think it's, yeah. I think in the music realm, it's actually something where, like, what is, you know, a hundred gecks, if not memes as art that is music, you know? Like, yeah. what is Bill Wirtz, you know, if not yeah. meme shit posts as fantastic music? L like, yeah. that is, Bill Wirtz is such a, is such a, like, interesting figure in the art versus content debate because of the way that he... I mean, I, I think you could almost say he uses the aesthetics of content to create his art, which I think is also something that broadly you see in, um, uh, you can see that pretty broadly in like hyperpop as a medium. Yeah. A lot of hyperpop is about using the aesthetics of content as art. And in doing so, I think it kind of elucidates the fact that they are one in the same. But is Bill Words, is his music art because it's good? If someone made similar music to Bill Wirtz, but sort of less artistically successfully, <laughs> is that art? That's, I don't know. I mean, I, I think to go back to my cop-out answer as to what is and isn't art, it's art if you look at it as, as art. I think broadly, you could say, you could apply that on an individual level. You could also say kind of broadly something that a lot of people look at as art is art that assessment doesn't need to be individualistic but by that assessment again getting into the definitions getting into the nitty-gritty yeah. really can you can trip up and run in circles about this stuff until your head falls off yes correct and that's what makes it fun <laughs> fun <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing to do yeah <sighs> Well, on that, this has been a fantastic episode. I think we should probably wrap up before yeah. we, you know, repeat ourselves yeah. enough times that their heads fall off. Yeah. <laughs> that does happen to 12-tone listeners. It does it's happen. Been, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's a, we can't talk about it much. There's a lawsuit going on right now. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> I won't say anything. <laughs> Gotta wait till we have Devin on. But before we go, uh, just uh, before we wrap up, I did want to just, uh, Scott, give you a chance to plug uh, some of your music. You talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but if you wanted to just talk a little bit more about what you do and yes, where please. people can find you as well. Sure. So I release music under the name Scott Making Sense. It is comedic, rock, and indie, electronic. It's all over the place. Uh, if you're a fan of like <laughs> They Might Be Giants or Jonathan Colton, you might like it. You can find it on the internet. Um, Scott making sense, sense spelled like money. 
And I'm on all the social medias as Scott Making Sense. So if you follow me there, you'll see whenever I'm putting out new stuff. Without running the risk of dividing this too long, I'd love quickly, like, Corey and I have talked about our relationship to what we make as art and content. Where do you fall with your music? How do you feel about your music as it fits into the art content discussion? So I don't have any moral issues about calling it content, but I feel like from a practical standpoint, I don't make enough stuff. Like, I feel like content almost seems like I would have to be more active to be making it. I don't know. That's just a weird <laughs> yeah. like, colloquial thing. Where it's like, oh, I'm not a content yeah. creator because I'm not productive enough. Yeah, there, <laughs> there definitely is something about an implication of a level of like prolificness with content. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I know, like I, I joined TikTok a few months ago and my wife knows a lot more about it than I do. And she said, you have to post three times a day if you want your following to grow. And I said, nope. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That's why I haven't dipped my toes into TikTok. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed this conversation. We'd love to have you back on sometime. Yeah. Just thanks for coming on. This was really fantastic. Thank you. And yeah, as always, you, people listening hopefully know where to find us. So watch our content. Watch our content. It's how we continue to be able to make it financially. All right. And click on the ads. <laughs> yeah. Or don't. We're on an ad blocker if you want. I won't judge you. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye.